it's an honor to have you. I, you know, I, um, I did a bunch of them just cause I, I love the aesthetic, you know, business. I love business in general. I love, you know, teaching and mentoring. And I, uh, so, you know, I did about 15 or 20 of these, I forget, maybe 20. And then, you know, I kind of lost my enthusiasm just a little bit. Cause you don't know if you, you know, and I ran into so many people at this last meeting and they're like, thank you for doing them. It's been so helpful. I've only been out four or five years. And so um, I decided to do them again. And I, I, I learned something every time, you know, um, you know, that, oh, I, that we, do. I love business and I love running my business. And it's sad that so many of the younger physicians are so afraid of running their business that they think, well, I need to just have a salary and be an academic physician. And I, I can't really manage my own practice. And, you know, I didn't go to business school, and I don't think you did either, but you no. learn, learn on the job, and it's fun. Yeah, it is fun. I think, you know, the epiphany I had, you know, at one point was that, um, you know, we think of the things that we give. You know, we give to our patients and we give to the residents, but you also give a lot, if you run a successful business, you give a lot to your team. And, uh, you know, spend a lot of team, time with the people you work with and you can contribute, you know, overall just by being better at what you do, not just to take care of patients. Um, the other thing is I think that we as physicians really, really are not in control of our destiny if we, if we all just go sign up to work for somebody else. And I think that that's part of, part of what's happening, happened and happening in medicine, you know, and you can't blame doctors because, you know, they they don't go to medical society meetings, they don't do it or academy meetings because they're so busy. And and I I, I well I a woman at this past meeting came up to me and she interviewed with me and she said I just I you know I just want to know how to get more involved. And I said you know because I'm going to ask you this question. Um, I said, do, you know, get to the meeting, get a day before. Yeah, but I got to take a day out of work. I said, yeah, I know. I've been doing it for 30 years. Yeah, I know it. Exactly. So, and and I wanted to dispel some myths, um, and maybe you'll argue with me because you're the second pr uh, woman president of our academy. I'm. I feel very honored that I, I have three daughters, so I feel very very honored that I was the one that nominated Mary Lynn Moran, and I was uh, a big fan of uh, pushing that forward. And it really bothers me when I feel, you know, I have women that come up to me and say that I just think it's an old boys network and I can't. So I want you to you know, maybe tell your story. How did you get involved with the Academy? You've done, you know, you were an absolute natural choice as president of our Academy um, because of so much you've done and, and, and led all your leadership. But how did you get involved with the Academy? I mean, my involvement with you is we did a meeting together and you just shot the lights out with the meeting. But how did you get involved? And is it is it a, an old boys network that you can't get involved if you're a woman? Well, it was an old boys network for sure. And it was very challenging to become a, a vital member of the Academy because there were so few women. So, you know, you hear so much about the younger women needing mentors, and we didn't have mentors. So uh, my history is that I joined my fellowship director of practice. I was Iris Appel's first fellow, and the deal was that I was going to be his fellow, and then I would join him in practice. 
and you know, there's a few people who are still in practice with the same person they joined almost 30 years ago. So I wanted to ask you about that um, a little bit because it is a rarity. I have people that have joined me and we've stayed together, but I, I'm going to come back to that. So, how, you know, so, how so you, Ira is involved very, yeah. yeah, Ira is very big in the academy. Right. And he encouraged me to become more involved, which unless you really know what that means, you don't really know what to do. So I was like the younger people that were saying, well, I'm not going to come on Wednesday because it's all committee meetings and I'm not on a committee and why should I come early and spend another day in the hotel and uh, take another day from my practice? So I'm not going to do that. And then I had this epiphany that, well, if I don't go to these, how am I going to get more involved? So I started going to the committee meetings. I asked to be on some committees. And little by little, you get more exposure to other positions, big names that you you see in the hallway and you sit next to them at a meeting, at a committee meeting, and you get to talk to them, and it's just really cool. Um, but as I said, there were no women mentors for me. Um, so I was in the um, compendium um, committee and worked on the compendium and then became chairman of that, became chairman of the women in, women in facial plastics committee. So little by little, you just do the work, you meet other people, you get your name out, and that's how you become involved. You know, but, but younger people, people ask me, how do I get involved? To me, that means, you know, they want to know how do I get to become famous and uh, give a lot of talks at the, at the podium. And it doesn't really work that way. It's a, it's a bit of a sacrifice. It's a fine sacrifice. Yeah. And maybe even a financial sacrifice if you do have to spend more of your own money going to meetings and an extra day at the meeting to to give service to the academy. And that's how you get involved. Um, becoming the president of the academy has been a really long process for me. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the men who have become president of the academy did it much younger than me. And I'm just about the same age as you, Ed, and you were president, what, 10 years ago, or close to that. 2015, so, but I wasn't, I wasn't a young man. I was, you know, 54, 55, and the first time I was asked, I turned it down. Um, so, yeah. you know, I did because I didn't feel like I knew enough about the organization, quite frankly, to serve it correctly and i think and i'm going to ask you to maybe just if you can get a little closer to your mic something's coming through a little muffled but um okay. but I, I i you're absolutely right i mean what that wasn't your plan to, to be president right i mean you like no, you didn't really, and my and and i can tell you i didn't try like that wasn't something that was on my list like i want to be president of the academy i want to be in the leadership spot if you show up, as you mentioned, on the Wednesdays before the committee and go to committee meetings, it just kind of happens, right? I mean, obviously, you got to do some work, but if you do some work, you show up, you do some work, you ask to run a section in the meeting, 
Next thing you know, people know who you are. And when all of a sudden the, you know, Northeastern regional director position on the board comes up, there's not that, you know, when you really look how many people fit that criteria that have, that are full, you know, that are fellows of the academy. Next thing you know, your name is surfacing because they, people have seen that you've done some work. Am I right? Exactly. They, they know who the worker bees are. And so yeah. if you want to get more involved, you get more involved. You do the things that the academy asks you to do. And it's, it's not just showing up for the meeting. It's actually doing the work of the meeting. Um, yeah. And it's fun. When you and I ran the meeting in 2020 in Boston. Well, you did all the work for that meeting. But, you know, not, not like I didn't do my share of work on other meetings. But you, you, it's rewarding, right? It was fun. It was like having a baby to see all your hard work, you know, all of a sudden the signs are up and the speakers are there and it's, it's really gratifying. But you have to be able to get gratification from that and realize that you're helping the whole. So I didn't do it for me. I did it for the Academy. I did too. I have to tell you, it's been, it was one of the most rewarding things that I ever did that year, I really felt like I made, without getting into the specifics, I, I, I think you'll feel the same way. You'll look back and say, you know what? I did my share. And um, I, as you know, I've pretty much powered down because it's important that the next generation steps up. But I also don't want to be one of these old people that are hanging out and worried about their relevancy, you know? <laughs> yeah, that does become a problem. Well, I mean, I got a lot of pushback from the my my dear friend, older people that were all annoyed because they didn't have as much time on the podium. And, you know, it was a it was a very interesting thing because I I really felt like, well, what I did, I set an example. I didn't I didn't take one spot on the podium that year because I felt like, you know, I needed to set an example. Um, and we put a lot of young people on the podium, but they got a lot of a lot of pushback. But but it was one of the most rewarding things. Tell me about the early years. I mean, you joined Ira. What was that? You know, what was Ira's a big name? We, I mean, I knew Ira's name when I was a resident. You know, right? Um, he was Ira's. He's he's been around and he's been in every leadership position. And he has someone I I consider a friend now, and I have a tremendous amount of uh, respect for. Um, how was it joining a practice? Because then you know, there's there's Dr. Papel and then there's Steve, right? I mean, that's how right. it is when you when you when you go in and you join someone who's a big name, like what, what was that like? And, you know, how did it stay together for so long? Cause yeah. What, what do you think of like the key ingredients that made it stay, stay together? Well, the part of it's personality. Ira and I get along pretty well. You know, it's like a marriage. We sometimes disagree, but we tend to work it out. He's pretty low key and unemotional. And um, I can sometimes be emotional, but we we just get along. We we've got the same goals, so we're we're a good team, I think. Um, but joining Ira initially concerned me because I felt like he was hiring his competitor. You know, we both did the same thing. So right. so how am I going to get a patient that doesn't want to see Ira? You know, why would they see me and not Ira? Um, so I kind of had a talk with myself about the fact that I was not going to be a rhinoplasty expert because anybody, because that's Ira's thing. Right. So 
I do rhinoplasties and I do plenty, but the rhinoplasty guy of our practice is Iris. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to compete with Ira with rhinoplasty, and I'm not sure that I really want to. So what can I do? What can I become an expert in that is not going to affect my professional relationship with Ira? And right at the time I finished my fellowship, injectables were becoming big. Uh, and I thought, well, why don't I become an injectable expert? And I did. Um, and I wrote a textbook on it. And so that has been the focus of my practice in becoming an expert in something that wasn't rhinoplasty. But we still both do everything. I have those injectables, I do rhinoplasties, we both do everything else. Mm -hmm. But I, I set my expertise at a different level so that we weren't both competing for a rhinoplasty. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really has worked. Um, we, we did hire another physician years ago who we thought was going to join us, another facial plastics position. And he, after two years of being employed, was trying to buy in. He decided that he was not going to buy in. And Ira and I were really shocked because we had no idea that was going to happen. But what I sort of learned later was that he wanted to do rhinoplasty. And uh, I think he decided that there wasn't enough room in the practice for two rhinoplasty So I think to have your expertise sort of separated, it allows for us not to be um, arm wrestling for every patient. Yeah. I mean, we see that. I would say, I dare say that 80 to 90% of practices where a junior joins a senior fall apart. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. And I think that it's um, probably because you're competitors. Yeah. What, you know, I asked someone, on this podcast, and I want to ask you um, advice you would give a junior person joining a senior person. What would your advice be to make it successful, to make it work? Providing, of course, your senior person is someone who is trustworthy and you know a good mentor and a good. You know, what what are what are some what's some advice? Because we see it happen all the time, and it rarely. I mean, I feel very blessed because. I have a great team here and two of my, uh, you know, former fellows are, you know, with us. Uh, and still, uh, Dr. Ponchi is actually just moving to California now, but after 17 years, we parted as, you know, as friends. Um, Slaughter's been with me for six years and he's a partner now. And, um, but, but I know it fails most times. What, what advice would you give to young people joining us? Because we're going to see a whole generation of this now, right? We have people that have been out in their, my age, you know, in their 60s and are thinking toward retirement and bringing people in. How, how, what advice would you give to a young person? Well, choose wisely, Grasshopper. Yes, <laughs> I think that's the first step. Choose wisely. Yeah. Choose wisely. Um, you, it's, the senior person, it really depends where they are in their, in their career. If it's a senior who is just about ready to retire, then, then it's great because you can ask them to stick around, introduce you to their patients, you know, help uh, give you the leg up 
to get the practice going. But if it's someone who's sort of near the end of their career but still going strong, then you're going to have to, you know, have a, a real good understanding about how they're going to allow you to get patients, how you're going to treat patients, how you're going to share patients, because you basically are competitive. You're sharing the same resources, but you're going after the same patients. So how's the new person going to get new patients, and why is the patient not going to go to you as a senior person and go to the young person? You still have to charge the same. You can't be... Um, you know, having the younger person charge less for the procedures. So I think it all has to be worked out way ahead of time. I think um, that's, the, that's the secret right there, is worked out ahead of time. Yeah. Worked out so ahead Ira of and time. I, Ira and I have a, had a rotating thing where um, if, a, if a staff member was talking to a new patient, someone who didn't have a preference for one of us, then there was a, there was a rotating uh, name uh, index card on the cabinet, and they would flip it to propeller contest. So if the new patient was a contest, then they'd flip it, and the next new patient was a propeller. So we we did figure out ways to make it fair. But you know, certainly if someone was referred to me, then I would get the patient. But if they didn't have a preference, then you know they would ask my staff, well, who's better? And they would look at the index card. <laughs> Dr. Papel's better, and <laughs> he would get that for So, um, so it, as long as it's fair and no one feels like they're getting the, the short end of the deal, then I think it works out fine. And, and if there are things that bother you, you need to talk about it and work it out and not just stew about it. I mean, it is like a marriage, you know? You There's no question. Communication is critical. And communicate, and if you feel bad about something, work it out. Um, but, you know, you know as well as I do that sometimes egos get in the way, right. and I think that's why it breaks down. So a couple things that we do that I think are, so the first thing is when Slaughter joined me, so, you know, at that point I was, what, 55 or 56 or something, I'm not retirement age quite yet, and I said to him, look, I have plenty, I, I, one, there's some stuff I'm just going to give up, Okay. I'm going to give up all of our soft tissue, skin cancer. I'm going to give up. I'm not going to do injectables any longer. And I'm not going to do hair any longer. They're all yours. And, but, you know, for the time being, and let's just do the math. You're 35. I'm 56. You're going to outlast me. And, um, but I'm not going to promote or market you for aging face or rhinoplasty because Finally, after 25 years of doing this, I'm going to stop doing skin cancer and those things to, you know, to give to you because you don't have to go out and like, where am I going to get a Botox patient from? So day one, you can feed your family. These are the ground rules. If someone asks for you naturally, you get them. They get, they come to you. And that's what we did. And, and I, and the other thing is, I think is critical, as you mentioned, is the communication piece. Um, you know, I, I get to every two, three months, we go out to go to dinner and just talk. You know, I started doing it as of recent because we have a now we have a number of us. One, it's actually the first and the third Monday at the end of the day, 530. We have we call coffee hour, basically. And, you know, I have my management meetings with the managers of each of the businesses. But during coffee hour, 
they can ask anything they want. Now, I have the majority stock and everything. So um, I call it, you know, our decisions are equity based. Right. I mean, you, you know, if you own 5% of this entity, you can't be making the decisions, but you, you at least um, are owed an explanation of why we do it this way. <clears throat> For example, I want to only work with this nurse. Now, you and I both know that doesn't, you can't do that. It, it splits the team. All these, you know, Ray Dalio wrote this book called um, uh, Principles. And he has all life principles. Now, Ray Dalio, is a, he was the head of Bridgewater um, Securities, one of the top 100 most influential people in the country, apparently. And um, But he grew this business to a multi-billion dollar business. And, and he wanted to hear all the information and the criticisms, but there is one best way to do something, right? And there are business principles. And I'm not going to reinvent a wheel, but but it's important that you're able to communicate and teach and mentor and bring those people along, right? So what we do is if, you know, Slaughter or Polonese or, you know, Ureta, you know, wants to work with just this nurse every time, um, I can't, you know, so you bring that question up. And then what I say to the managers is, you know, I'm there. I only weigh in if the managers can't answer that question, but most of the time they can. The bottom line is it's communication. And I think most of us don't take the time to communicate. Many times these relationships are kind of thrown together. We'll talk about the buy-in down the road. You know, I mean, my associates, as they get ready for partner, we open the books. We run it like a business and it's all fair. And by that and communication, it, it, it fosters the relationship because what I see so many times, because I've, you know, I've talked to so many people where it's falling apart is that, you know, okay, join me. Here's your salary. We're going to talk about a buy-in in a couple of years. And the next thing you know, you're both busy and this one's frustrated and there's no communication. And now all of a sudden the buy-in is this big contentious number that doesn't make sense, but there hasn't been communication along the way or, or a lot of thought put into it. What do you yeah, think? We talk, about the, we talk about the buy-in when they get hired. Yeah. So there's no surprises. We, yeah. Ira and I hired a um, general plastic surgeon who was a resident of the, the plastic surgeon's rotating. So we found a young man who was interested in joining us. And it was all spelled out when he joined. He knew exactly what it was going to cost to buy in. Um, we had, there were no surprises. Um, and we also, didn't limit his ability to practice facial surgery. And I, I know a lot of facial plastic surgeons do that. Like I get the face, I get the facelifts, and you can do the body stuff. But Ira and I really didn't think that was fair. You know, if he has a patient who wants a facelift, you know, because he's done their lipo, why shouldn't he be allowed to? Mm -hmm. So uh, he'll be eventually inheriting the practice in both of them. So it's, it's a fair, system and I think that gives mutual respect when you treat other people fairly. What what we did and I you know I talked to when he came on I said listen I know we have you and I both know if you're doing you know run a fussy run a fussy run a fussy you're going to get better at it you're going to get more efficient you're going to generate more revenue per unit time or if you're doing tummy tuck tummy tuck tummy tuck right so you you know I mean, if I'm sending you all this, I mean, if we can get over our ego here, 
um, wouldn't you rather be per unit time generating more revenue? Because every time you change gears, whether it's, you know, changing CPT codes and a new meaningful use, all the criteria, well, in an aesthetic practice, it's not that, but still you're, you're, you're trying to get good at doing a facelift when you could do a better job. And if we can get over that ego, wouldn't it make more sense? And my partner was like, yeah, I, I don't say I don't like rhinoplasty anyway. And so that's how we, we don't prohibit it, but it, but in reality, um, you know, if we can get you busy and you, it's also easier for us to brand you as the mommy makeover person in our, our, our community. Wouldn't you rather have that leveraged versus just trying to get another case? And so, um, one of our plastic surgeons is with us. He does injectables and whatever, but you know, I think he would agree. He's much better off doing a mommy makeover than trying to do a rhinoplasty and spending three hours when, you know, I can do it in a lot less time. And so it's a, but it's communication level of understanding. What has been, what was the biggest struggle getting started in your, in your career? Well, you know, the hardest thing years ago was to become established as a facial plastic surgeon. I started in practice, as did Ira, doing your nose growth, you know, and I took out a lot of tonsils and cleaned a lot of ears. Yeah. And it wasn't until about 15 or 20 years ago that we decided to change our practice to only facial plastic. And that was the hardest part, I think, was trying to establish a name. And I actually made some mistakes. I sort of took over all of the marketing and uh, advertising of the practice. And my biggest mistake was marketing and advertising the name of the practice rather than our individual name. Yeah. So it was the Facial Plastic Surgery Center rather than the Pell and Con. I and completely agree with you. And you know what? I see so many of our young people who get that wrong. And I did too, because I didn't want my name. Like I didn't, I don't like my name in lights kind of thing, you know, but the reality is, you know, no one's going to go to the something, something lakeside practice. Uh, and it was probably 20 to 20 some years into practice that I finally changed the name to. And then when we had a marketing, you know, branding person come in uh, about five years ago, trying to reinvent ourselves. I let our partners decide what they wanted to do. They wanted to keep the name William just because everybody in this community knows it. So I, you know, I agree with you. And I think it's a mistake we all make because we're, you know, we don't like the light shining on us and putting our name all over everything. But the reality is the branding part of it is important. Don't you? Yeah, you agree. Absolutely. You know, I, I'd be in, in a, a party or something and introduce myself, you know, and people would say, oh, I never heard of you, you know? And then yeah. the practices where it was Dr. So-and-so plastic surgery, they knew that Dr. So-and-so plastic So I, I, I had this revelation that i got to get my name out there. People need to recognize my name. Or yeah. I'm not going to win the you know Baltimore top doctors or whatever because right. no one's ever heard of me. Yeah. So that really made a big difference. It's okay to have the name of your center. Ours is the Aesthetic Center at Woodholm. But our names are all on there, and we market our names. Doctors Capel, Pontus, and Brown at the Aesthetic Center of Yeah. What was one of the biggest mistakes you made early on? Well, you told me that. I mean, that was, you know, Brent. Yeah. Yeah. 
What's your What's your biggest challenge today? Uh, time. Time. I'm, yeah, I'm so busy. It, it, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a quick funny story. When I first started in practice, I talking to my secretary, and this is probably the first couple months of, of my practice. And I said, um, she said to me, Dr. Contis, did you see your schedule for tomorrow? And I said, no, I haven't. And she said, you don't have any patience. <laughs> and I said, Jennifer, my dream is to one day be two weeks booked up. And I tell you, you know, you watch what you wish for because yeah. You know, you get so, so busy, and now I try to take some, some time off during the week, and it's a struggle because patients are complaining they can't get in, you know, and I'm working as hard as I can. So I think time right now for me is that I'm so busy that I just can't work any harder than I can. Now, so let me ask you, how, how long have you been in practice now? Uh, almost 30 years. Has it really been 30? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So good. Yeah, Cause I've been 30 years in practice. I thought you were, I thought you were a bit younger. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Take it as a compliment. Yeah. What would, advice would you give to, you know, young, a young, cause you know, I talk to a lot of young people who are starting out and are, are really, I don't say struggling, but they're, you know, they are struggling. They're really having a tough time. Uh, they're worried, you know, they're worried about the recession. Um, what advice would you give to young people? The best thing to do is to be honest with your patients, um, ask happy patients for reviews, and really do some focused marketing. You know, Ira and I, when we first started trying to get patients, we would have little seminars in our office um, it's called Aging Gracefully, and we would just tell people what we were doing. And, um, we had marketing on television and radio, and all those things helped. You know, I'm not quite sure how effective social media is at bringing in new patients. I know some people are stars at social media, but I have found that it's a waste of time for me. I get many more patients from TV commercials and radio. Uh, and patient um, recommendations and good reviews, Google searches, much more than someone saying, well, I follow your Instagram and I thought I'd come in and get consultation. Yeah. So I, I'm not quite sure. I think some people have mastered uh, Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and all that, but I think it's a waste of time you know, singing and dancing and doing funny little uh, skits with your injectables. It just, I, I don't it's think it's funny. professional. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. Some, so one of my colleagues sent me, you know, one of this, one of those things, you know, someone dancing around and they're like, you know, like the heck is our specialty come to, you know? And I think for some of us old timers, if you want to call us that, it's disturbing to see, you know, someone you knew that interviewed with you for fellowship a year or two ago, and now they're world famous, Beverly Hills renowned. You know, it's like, you know, I mean, where have have we no like pride in ourselves? Um, it is a little disturbing, and I, I do tend to agree with you. I mean, again, my you know, I have a very established practice too, and um, 
but people so much time and time after time after time again when we look at our data it's friends and family and previous pay, former patients and and I don't think you can I don't think you can ignore the Google reviews I mean you know we all realize what's the first thing you do when you go buy flooring somewhere right you check out the reviews so that's something that we weren't doing up in you know five or six years ago and I think it hurt us a little bit because uh, you know we we I remember we had a goal of like you know getting a thousand hundred reviews for each of the doctors and it just seemed so daunting at the time but you do have to work it. That's something you can't ignore. You, you've got to work at it, you know. Um, but I agree. I don't I don't think people are coming to me because they see me dancing around. However, you know, we do it. I mean, I have, you know, we have, um, you know, we have a couple of people here that work on social media and I just do what they tell me to do. And, um, okay. you know, the other thing, too, it's hard for us I, I, is, is you want to kind of be yourself. Um, I I just... I hate to be like, look how wonderful my life is and all this. It makes me kind of ill, almost, you know. And yes, I guess some people have been wildly successful doing that. And maybe if that's part of who you are. But um, but I, my advice, I guess, to young people, just be yourself and be a good doctor and, and not and put your head down and not worry about all these other things that, you know, would you agree? Totally. You know, I... I get more respect sometimes from patients when I tell them they don't need something than yeah. when they do need something. You know, if their if their Botox is still working, I don't inject them again. I tell them, you know what, your Botox looks great. Come back in a month, and that yeah. that just establishes trust. No question. You know? um, so it's sometimes, as I said, what you don't do rather than uh, what you are doing. So. Yeah. Honesty and having a rapport with the patient is so important. One thing I do that I think is really the most fun part of my job is going over there before and after pictures. So I print out their before and afters and we sit and look at them together. And on there, and I print them out and put them in an envelope for them. And then on the outside of the big manila envelope, I have a letter stapled to the outside so it doesn't get lost in the inside, and it asks them for a review. And basically, it says that I appreciate them uh, trusting me with their surgery, and that reviews are so important now, and most likely they read reviews about me. And if they could write a review, that I would I appreciate it. And it's, it's a good point. It's a bit kind to ask for a review. If you don't ask, you won't get them. No. Uh, so, and, and that's kind of the exciting time that they see, well, wow, that big bump on my nose is gone, or my jowls are better, and maybe I will write a review. So, but you've um, also, you know, you're, that's a whole reciprocal thing, right? You're giving them something, and there, you know, there's a potential obligation to feel like, you know what, I'm happy to give her something back. Yeah. Any, um, you know, I want to respect your time. I appreciate you getting on any, any pearls or wor words of wisdom, advice, other things, you know, that you could give to the, to the next generation. Well, I, I just wrote a paper with my daughter who's in medicine and yeah. it was on, um, it was a review uh, or a commentary on a paper about burnout. And it was, it was really interesting to talk to my daughter, who's 25, about physician burnout, because 
young people now are so stressed that I think that burnout is becoming much more of an issue for them than it is for us. Am I right that you look forward to no, work I, every day, right? Uh, no, the, the thing is, um, so, you know, I did a podcast on burnout for that very reason. And I, when I was doing my research, I think 50 to 60% of physicians they're saying are burned out right yeah. now. And you may have more recent data, but, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons because we're so vested in what we do. It's not like you can just sell the company and go on to something else. You got to make this work and we work so hard, but yeah. So tell me what you, tell me what so your thoughts. You got to love what you do. Yeah. You know, you have to make sure that you are, you make your world, like you and I one time talked about staying in the sweet spot. You yeah. need to stay, you need to do what you enjoy. Like, I hated sinus surgery. I just hated it. I hated yeah. talking to patients about their sinuses. I hated doing sinus surgery. <laughs> and it's like one of the most wonderful things in my life to give up doing sinus surgery. So if you Focus on what you love. I think the chance of burnout is much less. I also think that one thing that being in private practice does for you is it gives you total autonomy. You know, if I'm unhappy well, with a staff member, I can I can treat talk to that staff member. I can fire that staff member if I'm not happy. If there's equipment I don't like, I can buy new equipment. And I think that in academics there's this sense that you have absolutely no control. You have to get paid what they tell you. You have to do what they tell you. You have to use the equipment, the equipment that they give you. And I think that that sort of feeds the frustration that people are seeing so much now in medicine. So here's a plug for going into private practice. But I think there are so many benefits to being on your own and, and master of your own universe. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with you at all. I I have people asking me all the time when you're going to retire, and I don't believe it's good to be doing surgery into your 70s. I just that's where I'm at, you know. But but I I have control of everything. I I, I know when I want to go on vacation. I don't ask anyone. I uh, I want to work less. I want to make more. You know, all of those things are uh, you know I'm the master of making that decision and. Uh, Boy, it, you know, what do they say? 70% of people leave a job over frustration. So, um, you know, there are those days, as you know, <laughs> when you run your own business um, because you, you know, you deal with the risk and you deal with the headaches of all that. But I feel like I'm, you know, in control of where I want to be. Um, I have a daughter I'm very proud of. She, you know, she went out uh, at the age of 24, uh, you know, she had a marketing degree and went out and she decided to sell real estate and she's, she bought her own home and, and, and I, I you know, so she, right now she's like, well, she's doing all the right things and she's, you know, financially she's, she's, you know, growing and doing what she has. She you know, sets all her goals and all this other stuff. But um, I was talking to her the other day, cause you know, let's face it, the real estate markets like this, but I've been around real estate my whole life. And, and I said to her, look, the one thing you have is you have control of your future. You, you know where you're going. Um, you know what you're doing. And so many people will give up in the in the interest of not taking any risk at all, will show up for an hourly rate and not have that flexibility or control of their life. 
And there's no question in my mind, you're gonna, you're gonna do well with it because you're doing all the right things. You've been in it for a couple of years, you're making a living. But um, the one thing that we do, and I, I do feel for our colleagues is we do have control of our future and our destiny. And that to me uh, gives me a lot more satisfaction than just uh, you know, showing up and having my, you know, having to ask for uh, next, whatever week off and they, someone tells me I can't, right? But, you know, much more frequently hear someone in academics going into private practice than the other way around. I know, I know. So, well, look, I, I really, uh, you know, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, and especially I, I want to put a plug in for, you know, for women, because uh, you have done extraordinary things in our academy. And it was you. It wasn't it wasn't uh, the fact that you're a woman. It was because of who you are. Um, and. You know, there is a lot of opportunity. I see a lot more of these days, too, which is good. I think we've become a, um, a more inclusive and uh, inclusive organization. But um, but uh, I, I wanted really to you to kind of, you know, talk about that a little bit and how you got involved, because that's it's really just getting involved. Right. It is. And, you know, I, I've got a little period at our women in um, spatial plastics meeting this past year. We had a, a little seminar and luncheon that we yeah. have every year, and I looked out at the crowd, and there were like I don't know, 150 women there. Yeah. And when we started it, there were like 10. You and <laughs> so, you and Don, Donna Malay and a few others, right? Right, exactly. So you know, it's just it's so exciting to see how many women are interested in facial plastics. It's such a great career for women. Um, yeah. And it's exciting to see how our board and how our academy has, has really um, embraced diversity. So we're moving in all the right directions. And it's really yeah. an honor and exciting to be president right now because I, I feel that there's so many positive things going on. Yeah. Well, look, thank you, you know, not only for just doing this, but for all you've done for the academy, not just this year, but in, in years past. You've really uh, given a lot of your time selflessly, and I appreciate it. I, I know our organization uh, appreciates it, and you're a real inspiration. So thank you. And, for inviting uh, me. This is really, really enjoyable. All right. Thank you.